0: Welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin.
1: I'm David Daw.
0: And this week we have started the 1941 nominees with a little known and rarely discussed movie called Citizen Kane.
1: Pretty good. Yeah. It's pretty good.
0: I don't know why no one ever talks about this movie.
1: It's. I. Hearst uh, <laughs> was just that good.
0: Yeah, so obviously I'm being facetious. This is widely considered or used as a reference point as the greatest movie ever made. I hadn't seen it before, at least not all the way through. Like, obviously, I've seen clips of it because I've existed in the world. (laughs) And I think actually going into it thinking, okay, this is going to be the greatest movie ever made, maybe colored my reaction to it in a negative way. Which is not to say that I didn't think it was very, 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 very good. Perhaps even great. But I didn't think it was perfect. Uh, I
1: mean, I get it. There's like two or three three movies we've watched that I would really hear an argument as being better than Citizen Kane. But this is a really good movie.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, people should watch it. No question.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I don't think we've had a movie look like this before. We've had movies with like really good cinematography that have done sort of pieces of this. But there's just stuff in this like that very first well, scene that isn't part of the newsreel. The just darkened, smoky room scene where they're talking about the newsreel is like, Jesus Christ, how does this look like this and why has no one done this?
0: Uh, well, I mean, someone had done it. It was Greg Toland who started playing with this in Grapes of Wrath and just really pushed it to the limit in Citizen Kane in a way that I really loved and was one of my favorite things about the film is that the present in the film is dark, is so dark, and the flashbacks are where light comes in, and as we get closer to the present in the flashbacks, the darker it gets, but nothing is ever quite as in shadow as the present and i thought that that was a really interesting choice because the way that you think about memory is that things are sort of not as crisp and clear as what you're viewing in your current circumstances and he flips that on his head entirely and sometimes the light in the flashbacks is so bright and so every day was perfect when he was a child (laughs) kind of thing which makes sense given what his last words are But it's a really interesting choice, I thought, and I think is what makes the movie so strong.
1: Performance-wise, I think Orson Welles is doing great work in here, and I was sort of like, it's the closest thing to a naturalistic, like, really lead performance we've had in a movie outside of The Grand Illusion. Yeah. Some of the, like, second, third-tier cast... There's a weird energy to this movie because not everyone understands how to be in not a 1930s movie.
0: Or how not to be on stage. Right. The one that really bothered me and the part of the movie that I think brings it down from being a perfect film to being an excellent film with problems is really down to Dorothy Komangor who plays Kane's second wife. And her storyline is the only part of the movie where I was like, can we pick this up? I don't care about this.
1: Oh, I don't know. I love her storyline.
0: Ugh, and I thought she was awful. I don't know. She was so over the top. Well, I mean,
1: here's the thing. Most of the time when you're seeing her, especially in the present, she has been driven to be performative to the point where it's literally driven her crazy.
0: Her parts in the present I don't dislike, actually, because I agree with you that she's kind of like lost her shit and that being performative has become so much a habit that she doesn't have any sort of contact with authenticity anymore. It's that there's not a real development for me there, that she starts out that way when we first meet her.
1: <laughs> I think you're right in the sense that I think her weakest scene in the movie is the one that chronologically takes place first, is her scene meeting Kane. Yeah. By far her weakest scene, and it's just a weird scene in this movie. I think they're going for like the vicissitudes of fate if it weren't for this one thing, if it weren't for X, they never would have. But instead, it's just such a bunch of weird details and... She's coming in with this romantic comedy energy to Citizen Kane. It just feels very strange. Then she really doesn't have a lot to do in the big conf... God, should we... Do we need to do the plot of Citizen Kane?
0: I mean, I'd never seen it before, so I'm, I'm sure there are some people who haven't. I feel like it's one of those things, like, who admits that they haven't seen Citizen Kane?
1: That's a very good point.
0: We can give an overview. Like, we don't have to go scene by scene in the plot description.
1: Yeah, and, like, I think once you take out what this movie is doing structurally... There's sort of not a lot of plot. Like, the opening film crawl kind of covers the whole plot.
0: Yeah, it's a biopic of a person who didn't really exist, but who's largely based on William Randolph Hearst. Yeah. Supposedly.
1: (laughs) To the point where whenever I watch Citizen Kane, I always kind of forget that, like, it is so wild that Hearst lost his absolute shit at this movie, because this is kind of a kinder portrait than William Randolph Hearst deserves.
0: Uh (laughs) That's really fair.
1: (laughs) There's like a grand tragedy to Kane. There is this feeling in Kane of like greatness grasped, but not quite held. And then he just slips into being this sort of selfish asshole because he just can't quite grasp actually losing something as part of an exchange, whereas William Randolph Hurst. Didn't really much ever try to figure out how to do an exchange for the common man, let alone fail at it. Right. But the general plot is pretty much Hearst's life, born to a family that strikes it rich in the 19th century. He decides to take the family fortune and to become a newspaper man, owns just this huge media conglomerate, tries to go into politics, fails because of an affair loses his first wife in a car accident that weirdly I always forget that it's not really covered outside of the opening news crawl. They like just don't talk about it. Right. But his first wife and his son die in a car accident after they're estranged from Kane. Kane sort of spends the next couple of years trying to make his second wife into an opera star. That doesn't happen and he slowly fades from relevance. Loses a lot of money in the depression, but also has enough money to still own a fucking castle.
0: Oh, I think castle is like understating it. Uh, Yeah. I mean, he has like almost his own private city with a totally ridiculous palace. Right. And like a zoo. (laughs) Yeah. With two of each animal.
1: Yeah, it's wild. And almost all of the stuff about Xanadu is just straight up based on Hurst's. The private zoo was an actual thing at Hearst Castle in like the middle of California. But point is, he goes into isolation, becomes more and more withdrawn until you get to the, well, what is the beginning of the movie, which is his death, where he is holding a snow globe, drops the snow globe and whispers rosebud. And then I feel like one of the things that really is hard on this movie screen test of time wise is like everyone knows the twist, right? Like everyone knows Rosebud is the sled.
0: Yeah, like I hadn't seen it and I knew that and I was like, it was the sled he had when he was a kid. And I had no understanding of what the significance of that was. And honestly, like it's not even that significant. That's kind of the joke. Yeah. It's a punchline, but it's not funny is that his last words were this really sort of mundane thing from his childhood
1: right it is weird that it is kind of remembered as firmly as a twist as it is because there is that big speech by the newspaper guy of just like yeah there's never one thing this whole quest to figure out what rosebud is which is the framing device where you kind of keep having these nesting flashbacks from different points of view is that a reporter has been assigned to figure out what kane's last words meant on the theory that it'll give the story an extra oomph and really sum the guy up. And he, at the end of the film, gives a really lovely speech wandering through an absolutely absurd set in a fantastic tracking shot about how, like, there's never one thing. There's not one thing for a guy, or a human being, basically, that unlocks their whole shit. Right. Everyone's life is a collection of a bunch of stuff like this giant pile of bric-a-brac we are wandering through thematically for this scene
0: (laughs) yeah one of the things that is so strong in this film actually is the wandering through the bric-a-brac is perhaps the best example of it that wells came from the theater that that was really his love and that unlike a lot of earlier films we've seen that were directed by people who were taking their influence from theater and therefore were like just put the camera straight ahead and shoot the scene he really seemed to say what can we do in this medium that's not possible on stage and let that inform it in such a beautiful way and that tracking shot is one thing where like you could throw all of that stuff on stage but the audience is still only going to see it straight ahead and this gives you the opportunity to walk through it while the junk collectors are burning stuff in his home that's not worth anything you know they're like ah oh, that's junk just throw it away we don't need to sell it or whatever they're going to do with it and that grand shot that is cluttered with minutia is such a thing that you could not do on stage it was amazing
1: (laughs) i feel like this is the most widely known filming of citizen kane anecdote is the cutting a hole in the floor bit right but there is so much low angle shit in this movie and all of it feels theatrical in this sense of Having a real experience of sitting in the audience and looking at the stage that Wells wants this feeling of this is this very big thing you are a small person that is privy to.
0: Yeah, exactly. He's recreating the experience, the emotional experience of live theater without the structure of live theater. I mean, it's really, truly incredible. The number of times that the scale of whatever it is that you're seeing seems so tall, like specifically tall, which is the experience that you have if you're in a big theater sitting down in the audience and the stage is above you, is really just incredible. And there is no way to overstate Greg Toland's genius in this movie. I mean, the cinematography is just unreal. And I could probably go on about it for an hour and I don't know enough really about cinematography to say anything other than, my God, it's amazing. (laughs) The lighting. Also, the sound editing for this film is the first time ever we've been doing this project where I noticed the sound editing because it was good. (laughs) And it actually was incredible. It was so much a jump from good to holy shit, the Academy needs to establish an award for this, but also, like, who else would you possibly nominate?
1: (laughs) Right. This is not the first film we've had where people talk over each other, but it is the first film where people intentionally talk over each other for a good bit of the film, and the sound mixing makes sure that you are hearing the person you are intended to hear. When more than one person is talking at once. Yes. The other moment that I thought has been just really kneecapped by the screen test of time is the very first flashback to the small cabin and the, like, childhood where he's on the sled has such a flashback musical cue. Mm -hmm. And we haven't really had a flashback music cue before.
0: That's definitely one of the moments that popped out for me.
1: At this point, of course, everybody does it to the point where we had to stop doing it again because it's so cliched. I think the first time I watched this, when I watched it in high school... I had a feeling very similar to sort of what you're describing of like, this is very, very good, but it's not quite great. And I think the reason it's not quite great is that there's just been this intervening period where all the stuff that is really impressive about this has been done again in other movies that don't quite have the handicaps this movie has.
0: That's definitely true. I would say that, and I'm always the one who's hammering on about, well, we have to look at it from a screen test of time perspective. And I think that's true. And I think, you know, I've been influenced now by 13 other years of cinema that came before But the fact that so much of this film is the first time that we've seen things that now are standards, I mean, it raises the bar for all film forever. And in that way it is perhaps the greatest film ever made, not just because of what the movie itself is, but because now people have to think about cinematography and not just specific scenes where it's interesting. Like the whole movie has to have great cinematography. It has to have great editing. The sound design has to be great. The music has to be great. Or else it's just not living up to this bar. Yeah. To hop back to sound design really quickly, actually, one of the things that was so impressive to me and the one where I was like, holy shit, this movie has completely changed the game, is during the section of the film that is about Susan Cain's career and she's trying to become an opera singer and the way that they structure this specific montage scene, where you have a number of different notices in newspapers about her performances or upcoming performances, there is this cacophony of multiple soprano arias that are happening at the same time that are overlaying, but it starts with one and then adds another as each newspaper image is superimposed over a performance, which eventually starts to sound like hell is opening up it doesn't clash in a way that is just oh well we layered everything on top of each other it comes together in this really intentionally discordant way that i realize i'm the sound nerd on the podcast but it was it was like real like I shouted at the screen because I was so excited about it (laughs) no
1: and like I that is why I was so resistant even though I agree that especially at the start of the timeline of her performance not the start of her performance in the film that Susan Cain is kind of the most grating most kind of taking me out of it thing but there's so much stuff in her section like that Like those huge tracking shots into the rafters of the opera house that are just like, God, I would not lose this for the world. It genuinely is some of the most amazing stuff I've still seen, because the thing about that cacophonous moment of sound is it not only does layer itself in a way where you can sort of still figure out what's going on and it never reads as just like a bunch of stuff happening, but it does still thematically read as like, God, this must suck for her so much. To just be out there giving bad performance after bad performance. And you can hear her be bad on each individual layer of that that's layered in.
0: When it cuts to his face sitting in the box at the opera house and he has this almost demonic look on his face and is applauding really, really hard, you realize that he took this relatively simple hearted woman who was like, oh, well, I would like to be a singer and was like, I'm going to make you an opera singer Yeah, because he's not taking any joy in it at all he's like i will clap hard enough that they have to book her again and again and again
1: that he's so clearly doing it for nobody but him and that he is so clearly doing it to keep up this story he has told himself of why he became involved with this woman right he won't admit to himself that uh even if we didn't have an affair in a aff- affair because the Hayes code he went up to that room with the intention of sleeping with a woman besides his wife because he was attracted to her and had tried to make it this marriage of the mind so that he could still think of himself as a guy that wouldn't do that. Yeah. God, this movie's good.
0: Yeah. I mean, really, I think what my problems are with that section are I don't love her performance. And I do think that This is tricky. So, like, as far as storytelling goes and the pacing of the story, it feels like it goes on both for too long and, like, we don't really get enough of her her perspective in it despite the fact that she's in the present telling the story to the reporters who are trying to figure out what rosebud means i think that that was really my major issue with it have you seen velvet goldmine you probably haven't i have not very few people have and it's a pretty polarizing film you either love it for the things that are not great about it or you hate it for the things that are not great about it (laughs) But it uses the exact structure of Citizen Kane. There's this pop star who is basically David Bowie, who has disappeared, and there's a reporter who was one of his biggest fans when he was like a teenager, who is doing a story on what happened to him, where did he go, and is interviewing all of these people in his life. And one of the people that he interviews is the pop star's ex-wife, like his first wife, played by Toni Collette, who is absolutely phenomenal, you see the development of her into this very performative character that she is in the present from being basically sort of a groupie who wanted to be famous herself. And I was comparing it backward to that and going, well, that's the one thing about Velvet Goldmine, which is in no way (laughs) on the level of Citizen Kane, that actually got it better. But it's just the story part. As far as the Susan parts in this that are not necessarily narrative drivers there's some really incredible stuff in here
1: i agree with you in the sense that that is the only section of the movie where people essentially tell you the same event twice yeah is the section from jebediah's point of view of that being like the last time he saw kane and kane fires him and then her point of view of why is Cain still sticking up for this guy that wrote this terrible review of me? We know, of course, that Cain actually wrote the terrible review of her, that Jebediah was too drunk to do it. Yes. I think that is the moment where the screen test of time has been hardest on the film in that this is now such a basic thing, this idea of we're going to revisit the same event, but you're going to have a completely different point of view on it. Mm-hmm. But in this movie, it's like, Do you get it? Do you get it? Because, like, yeah, it must have been tough for audiences to get.
0: (laughs) That hadn't happened before in film, at least not with an Academy Award nominated one.
1: (laughs) Right. And, like, I have to say, I think watching that, because I remember that section dragging when I watched the movie in high school, too, of just going, like, well, it was specifically we watched it over the course of, like, a week in drama class. And I remember having this period of we already watched this part. Yeah, yeah. And then like, oh, no, we didn't. Actually, this is a different thing. It just feels like we already watched this part. Watching it a second time, it is very subtle, relatively camera work stuff about being in Susan's point of view. And I do think in the end, this movie story-wise does suffer that Susan is just kind of a rube. Yeah, She's just kind of too simple for this thing that she got thrown into. It would be stronger if she was a little bit smarter, but then also why would she stick around in this horrible thing for so long?
0: Well, I mean, being the wife of maybe the richest man in the world, there are reasons.
1: (laughs) That, yes, but like it, God, it just seems like the one area of his life that is just never portrayed as Kane being a sympathetic human being for a single solitary second is his married life to his first or second wife. He just seems like an absolute everything-you-would-not-want-in-a-husband monster from word one.
0: <laughs> yeah, because with his first wife, she's the political wife. He's married her because she is the niece of the current president? Do I have that? Right? Yes. Uh,
1: She's based loosely on the wild child niece of Roosevelt.
0: Alice. Yes. Oh, I could talk about Alice Roosevelt all day long. (laughs) But the character in Citizen Kane is really nothing like Alice at all. She's very proper. She's very polite. And their relationship is so businesslike and so cold. And then his relationship with Susan is diametrically opposed. She's essentially a trophy. Like, look at my hot little thing that I'm going to try to make even hotter. So yeah, I mean, in both ways, he seems absolutely disinterested in the humanity of his partner. (laughs) I mean, one of the things that actually I think is really great about this film and which makes it, uh, again, a bar that everything else is going to have to clear from here on out. We've had biopics before about real people who were kind of assholes and who were even assholes in the film. But we are supposed to look at them as perfect heroes. And I don't think this movie wants you to think Charles Foster Kane is a 100% good guy. But then you look at, like, Life of Emile Zola or Story of Louis Pasteur... Where they were both really kind of (laughs) dicks. Not all the time, you know, but they had that whole spiky personality of a genius thing going on. And we're just supposed to go, yeah, but, you know, that's fine that they were kind of rude to their wife or whatever because they were brilliant and important. And this is like... Mm, No, actually, sometimes if you're a genius at one thing, you're an absolute monster to human beings, and that's not actually okay. I
1: think, conversely, the thing this movie does remarkably is Kane is kind of the villain of this piece, but the movie still takes the time to say he is interesting and good at things. Which is sort of just saying the same thing you're saying from the opposite point of view of just like, there's some nuance to the guy, which sounds insane. The thing is, the screen test of time, the concept, has not been super kind to this movie, just because it's been so long since it came out. And everyone knows it's really good, and so it's ripped it off. But the screen test of time, the project, has been very kind to this movie. Because Jesus Christ, I have such a better conception of what a jump this movie is from the rest of the field when it came out.
0: Oh, yeah. I think filmmaking-wise, not necessarily storytelling-wise, but how to make a film, this takes a jump that is so much further than anything else that we have seen before. In the way that Capra was jumping ahead in 35 and then we've still seen plenty of movies in the intervening five years of nominees that are not even to the level of It Happened One Night when we talk about staging a shot and developing characters and giving them complexity. If that jumped ahead five years, Citizen Kane feels like it jumped ahead 10.
1: Yeah. One of the things that I just couldn't have imagined You know, because people always say, like, it was such a huge leap for filmmaking, and one of the things I couldn't imagine being true is... So one of the things about 1941 is that it's the first time there was an Oscar-nominated film where the protagonist was a complex figure (laughs) who, like, kind of sucked, but also had some decent qualities.
0: Right. Right.
1: (laughs) Is like... (laughs) And that's not strictly speaking true. There's Alice Adams. Like, we've seen hints of it before. But usually, by the end of the film, you kind of have to come down one way or the other. And go like, well, this person was all good. Or this person was all
0: bad. Or this person was completely unsympathetic by the end. I think that's what's really amazing about this film, is that the end of the film, you're getting the viewpoints of these people that he has really, really hurt. And been horrible, too. And you're still moved when they throw the sled in the fire. Because you're like, oh, but that was, that was his sled when he was a kid. You know, like you care about this, which is wild. Yeah.
1: The one other thing I want to discuss on that note is how well this movie navigates the Haze Code. The Haze Code still kind of is doing its best to hobble this movie because... Ostensibly, it's a movie about a man who is brought low by having an extramarital affair, and he, like, can't have an extramarital affair.
0: I mean, he can, but he can be punished.
1: Right, but, like, he notably does not actually sleep with Susan until after he divorces his first wife.
0: That's true. The press and the guy that he's running against and the party machine are all like, yeah, he's having an affair, but he doesn't actually have the affair Except perhaps emotionally.
1: Right. You can feel the haze code at play in that. But I think this movie so ably navigates, one, how clearly, yeah, he's definitely having an emotional affair. And two, there's this moment where he shuts the door and then she opens it back up and goes, I can't shut the door when there's a man in here. You can tell his intention. You can tell what his intention was.
0: I think that actually goes back again to Orson Welles being a child of the theater is that when you are faced with restrictions you learn how to work with the restrictions you have and tell the best possible story in the best possible way. And that leads to creative things like that. You know, he wrote the screenplay. The only award that it won was best original screenplay, which is wild, but he knew going in, well, the Haze Code is not going to let me do X, Y, and Z. So how do we make that intention clear while never running afoul of the Haze Code or Making our story suck.
1: (laughs) You know, it's not like this is a movie that was constrained in other ways. Like this is clearly a very expensive movie for the time and like looks it. Not like the most expensive movie ever made or anything, but God, the sets in this movie. And the scale of the sets in this movie Are somebody who has been constrained by the theater going How big can we make it?
0: That's the flip side of being constrained by the theater You know how to work within limitations But you also know how to exploit the hell out of any situation Where you don't have them
1: (laughs) There obviously is a lot to say about this movie For more, see any film critic who ever lived
0: Yeah, or any director currently working Or working since this film was made (laughs) Though, interesting little tidbit of information Ingmar Bergman apparently thought this movie was terrible.
1: That is wild.
0: (laughs) Yeah it's especially wild to me because thinking about Ingmar Bergman's movies I'm like I think you were influenced by this more than you know my dude
1: Yeah that feels like one of those things where like you can feel in old Orson Welles interviews that sometimes he just really had a genuine difference of opinion with another director about how to do something. And sometimes he just kind of wanted to kneecap somebody he was sort of threatened by.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: That feels like one of those. There's nothing to that. <laughs> nothing at all. Yeah. Um, Watch this movie.
0: <laughs> oh, absolutely watch this movie. No question.
1: Uh, I... <sighs> I want to give it a 10. The experience of watching it again in this project, when I watched it in high school, I thought like, boy, I bet having some sense of what this did for film as a medium would really bump it up for me. But like, I have no way of knowing that. And now knowing it, I'm like, we've given 10s to things that are worse than this. Uh, have we? I think so. I mean, I think this is a better movie than Rebecca. And we gave a 10 to Rebecca.
0: See, but I felt like story-wise, Rebecca was absolutely super tight. Even though it was wild how it kept going through lots of different genres, it felt like that was intentional.
1: Story, to me, was always the weakest element of Rebecca. It was always the thing that I'm like, all right, I'm like, I'm here for the rest of this. But it mostly just kind of felt like a shaggy dog story about like a guy you should never marry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, this is also not not that <laughs> no i mean it's not a shaggy dog story but it is it, it is in many ways a story about a guy you should never marry i, I, I can i give it a 9.99 <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, I get it. I mean, and I was the one arguing we can't just fucking give out 10s like candy. And we did give out three last year, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. My argument for that still stands, which is that all of these should be fucking 10s or else they shouldn't have been nominated. However, reality has not borne that out in any way. And it won't, like even going forward, it's not like a symptom of the 30s and 40s. There are movies that were nominated this year that I probably wouldn't give 10s.
1: I will say the first time I watched this, I would be closer to a nine. The first time I watched this, this is a movie that is kind on a rewatch, which is not a thing you would expect.
0: No, because particularly any movie that people are like, oh, it's the greatest film ever made. You're like, okay, I'm going to sit down and get through it. Uh, This isn't that way.
1: There is a real combination of, oh, this scene has another element to it that I really didn't pick up on the first time. And, oh, oh, we're getting to this part that made rewatching Citizen Kane actually really fun. Which is not to say that, like, when you watch it twice, you'll understand it's a 10. But, like, I think my score is being bumped up by this being a rewatch for me and me going like, oh, God, there was even more to Citizen Kane than I thought the first time I watched it.
0: Well, I might watch it again. Just, you know, not this week.
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, for sure. It is not a movie that I would, like, do worst idea of all time and watch over and over and over and over and over again.
0: I mean... I think that it would actually be, like...
1: It would be significantly better than the worst idea of all time.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's also not that long. Like, it's not even two hours.
1: I definitely remembered it as being, like, creeping up on three for some reason.
0: I think I did two, even... I mean, I hadn't seen it, but I think I assumed that... Mostly because whenever anybody talks about the greatest films ever made, they're always overly long. Yeah. And this is not.
1: This thing moves at a brisk pace. The only thing that arguably could be cut or like slimmed down is that period where you hear about Susan's opera debut from two different points of view. And I kind of loved that on this view through. It moves for a movie burdened with like the best movie ever. It has a fucking jaunty pace to it.
0: It's a good movie and you should watch it. What can I say? Yep. If you haven't. Well, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of people who know that it's good, but haven't actually seen it. But maybe I'm just projecting.
1: No, I think that that's true. Like, I honestly, if I had not been required to watch it in school, I think this definitely would be a like, well, yes, of course, Citizen Kane, blah, 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 I'll get to it someday. Right. Film for me too. I liked it pretty good in high school, but never sought it out to watch it again, so...
0: Well, I'm glad that you had to. Yeah. (laughs) So for next week, we are watching a color film called Blossoms in the Dust that stars no one I've ever heard of and... I don't know anything about it, so I can't really give you any preview of it.
1: (laughs) The Wikipedia page is one step up from notable about this film. It is in color.
0: Yeah, and the director was the director of Anthony Adverse, so I'm like...
1: Oh, Christ. Yeah. yeah.
0: I don't remember the direction of Anthony Adverse necessarily being the worst part of that film. And he also did I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, which for 1932 was pretty well directed. Yeah. But, you know, for 1932. <laughs> they were
1: both, like, structurally a mess. Like, they were they were both directed in terms of, like, film direction perfectly fine. But in terms of, like, a theater director kind of trying to keep the center holding, they were both messes.
0: And they were not well edited either.
1: Yeah. So
0: anyway, tune in next week to see if this one becomes... Mervyn Leroy's debut as an auteur or if it's just fine. (laughs) Or terrible. It could be terrible. That's always an option. (laughs) Uh, And until then, I guess this is the greatest movie ever made.
1: (laughs) I'm trying to summon up an Orson Welles impression to say this was a movie because like this was a movie the way Orson Welles would say, this was a movie. (laughs) His arms are out. He's grasping at nothing. Now this was a movie.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, it was. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody.
1: Bye. Speak,
0: Mr. Kane. Great. Wonderful, wonderful. Yes, Mrs. Jackson. Yes, Boy, I thought we were. I'm sending Junior home in the car, Charles, with Oliver. Night, Father. Bye, son. Hey!